gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. We can't just have a march and rally and then go have a beer. Life in this society, being at best, another bore. There remains the civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females, only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. You picked the wrong femboy to mess with. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. Yeah, the bureaucracy, got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview one. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. Uh, Lucario, this is spiritualist, possible Jill Stein voter. Ness and Lucas are in Japan. Hey, there's politics outside the U.S., you know. There's left-wing movements all over the world, okay? And I just think that's important. Sonic would be an accelerationist. And Jigglypuff, intersectional feminist queen. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elf, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Back again in the studio. This is the Three Left Show. I cover news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. I am Daniel Platt. This show's for the curious of the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. That is my platform, folks. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Those are the flags of the three lefts. And I'm back in the studio again. I kind of needed to check out last week um, because of things happening in the station. Pretty much I'm stepping up quite a bit more than I've wanted to all year. But it was more of a sense of dread that I needed to do this eventually and i put it off as long as possible until you know there had to be a bit of a crisis of some kind you know crisis gets things moving gets the history flowing you know and what better crisis to get history flowing than a pandemic anyway i'm actually going to pick up this episode right where i left off the last one which is number 130 uh what did i call it um class war confusion i called it why? Because it's so confusing about, like, what is the class war? What what, what are the classes of types of, of workers in, in America? Who's the ruling class? Who are the people? These are all questions, always, or rather, they're, they're concepts bandied about without an interrogation, a discussion of what these really mean. And when people do discuss them, it really comes down to some kind of personal experience, some kind of subjective, like, well, there was the one time that this kind of educated person, you know, made me mad because, or, or they're the professionals that I interact with. I never met a billion, millionaire before. 
So, but there are these other people who I see who look better dressed than me that I, I can't stand their guts. That's the kind of thing we have on the streets. Uh, at least that's what I experience. But there's something much bigger happening. Why not? You know, why? as there always is. So I wanted to pick up where I left off, which was, I was about to start an article called uh, To Hell with the Gentry. Uh, last episode I was talking about, where I discussed a historian's essay about the American gentry, the millionaire class, you could call them, of people who own the physical assets of things. You know, they're not the Wall Street financiers, the ones that are managing trillions of dollars, right? So they're those that manage things, and trillions of dollars is flowing through under their watch, making decisions, what have you. But besides the billionaires, which are, of course, the glittery uh, celebrity-type ruling class that we do see, and most people at least know that they are the household names, there are the local or regional millionaires who, though are not like, say, masters of the global economy uh, or Finnet, uh, and maybe not at making national decisions as much as they, they don't have national power like they'd like to have, uh, they have significant power in the middle strata. And they are the very backbone of reactionary politics in America, Trumpism, so to speak. So I want to return to a kind of debunking of the ideas of Michael Lind and the kind of neoliberal class politics, or rather like they're, they're a moderate approach to recognizing class, but, you know, these vulgar Marxists, they, they're so simplistic, they don't understand how things have changed, even though most of the ideas come from these more evolved or evolving Marxists from the mid-century, as well as uh, relying on their concept called the professional managerial class, which is the concept that we'll, I'll go deeper into following this. Um, I'm going to cover the rest of his article where he debunks the concept of the 99%, something that was pretty important to me at one time as an occupier. It's not so much an important slogan anymore, but it still does represent a concept that uh, is, though I can combine his ideas here with the American gentry kind of ideas and how we are, we can have a better conception where it isn't just a two-sided us and them, that there are there are strata of power, and that we can have a more nuanced or better understanding of political economy, besides just bad guys and good guys, me. So I started, I covered the first uh, bits of this, where he, you know, he, he published his new book called The New Class War, where he says that the, the real class divide in America isn't the divide between owner and renter or service labor versus professional labor. Rather, these these exist, but he maps them onto education level, which is pretty odd. But it will come into uh, play in a future article that uh, if I get to it uh, about college. But he got, a, he got kind of lambasted by left-wing thinkers, which I might respect more, but let's see. So to... To my surprise and amusement, the new class war has been denounced and mischaracterized in every prominent journal of center-left and radical-left opinion that has reviewed it. Despite my hostility in the book to Trump-style demagogic populism, 
A reviewer in the New York Times and an interviewer in the New Yorker tried to twist my argument that populist voters are not all fascists and racists into a defense of white nationalism, as did a dishonest reviewer in Jacobin Dissent, The American Prospect, and The Nation, uh, who all refused to review it at all. Because I was going to play, rather, it's in the cards that I play a clip of him defending himself on uh, the Hill program, Rising. Um, But I figured that was a little bit of an overkill. But needless to say, he was kind of uh, part of those moderate voices in the last four years that was like, look, hey, uh, there's, there's a class war happening. It isn't just that Trump voters are racist or they're just motivated by race and fears that they have about the nation that are really vague and subconscious, but mostly that there's this other that's coming uh, to erode what they believe America is. It's that there's this educated elite that is does, in fact, control their lives, and they're just trying to fight back however they can uh, by electing a, someone who just uses populist rhetoric, whether or not he does anything, which he didn't. But here he goes into, like, okay, he's trying to explain why these lefties hate him. Oh, they don't like his ideas. I should not have been astonished. My mistake was to have paid little attention to particular developments in leftist thought of the day, which seemed to have taken place in the last decade between Occupy Wall Street, the movement, and the present. Last 10 years. Lots happened in the last 10 years. But most of the remnant of the American left, which thinks about class at all rather than only race and gender, appears to have settled on the view that there is indeed a class war in the U.S., but it is not between the non-college-educated working class of all races and the college-credentialed managers and professionals, that's the PMC, a broad class into which most billionaires are part of or born into. Rather, the important class division is between the 99 and the 1%. It wasn't just a slogan. It is, in fact, a theory uh, or hypothesis. Or perhaps the 99.99% and the 0.01%. Now, this reminds me of a joke about the Occupy movement when it was still going that the South, South Park was making, where, like, because we put a percentage in a, in a slogan and the fact that it was meant to be an abstract concept of sorts uh, as a banner, people were like, oh, but that's not accurate. That's not really the, the, the change, uh, the, 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 the divide of wealth in America. It's really the 0.99.99% and the 0.0% as far as, like, who owns the most and who owns the rest. It's like, that's not the point. It was, But anyway, so professionals such as corporate managers, doctors, lawyers, and professors at prestigious universities, which are a shrinking amount of people, uh, but who make six to seven figure salaries are workers just as much as grocery store cashiers and custodians. The workers must unite against the capitalists, who apparently are defined as a tiny group of individuals able to live entirely on capital gains. The billionaires of Bernie Sanders and in this class war, the proletarians on the front lines of the class struggle are not steel workers or fast food restaurant cooks, but public school teachers and nurses. Now, this is a complete dis- misrepresentation because who the hell wrote in Jacobin or elsewhere that factory workers and custodians and so on don't count as workers? They're we're they're in the trenches organizing too, they're included in the labor movement, uh, organizes or outreaches to them. They're not left out of any conversation that I'm aware of. 
Uh, so in case you think my description of the 99% theory is an exaggeration, well, of course, like the exaggeration that, you know, school teachers and nurses are workers, so, <laughs> which is what he focuses on. Here's an art title of an article by Stephen, Steve Frazier, a thinker and historian whose work I admire in the nation, which is titled, Teachers Are Leading the Working Class Insurgency. A bit further to the left, well, a lot further, actually, in the international communist current, also has a headline, West Virginia Teachers Strike. Mobilizations in the education sector show the proletariat is not defeated. Now, here's a tweet by Jamie Brule. Again, working class is a relationship to capital and production. Nurses, teachers, and retail workers, food service, truck drivers, postal, mechanics, personal caregivers, hired hands for a contractor, they are all working class. Apparently he has a problem with this kind of thinking. A cynic might suggest that most leftists are really just partisan Democrats, and the teachers' unions, a major source of funding and get-out-the-vote efforts for Democratic elections, electoral machines, are the last vetches lit. Vestigial link to the labor movement in a party that is now dominated by Silicon Valley, Wall Street, multinationals, corporate media, progressive billionaires, and college-educated professionals. But for the sake of argument, let us assume that, of course, when I talk of leftists, I'm talking about none of those groups. And, uh, and for that reason, that's why I argue leftists shouldn't be in the Democratic Party because elect election... Democratic electoral machines are made up of all of those forces, and there's really no room for us, <laughs> uh, or for workers as we have defined them. But for the sake of argument, let us assume that the leftists believe that the PMC belongs to the working class and is sincere. You know, so he considers nurses and teachers to be part of the PMC. Why? Well, he lists off like annual salaries that uh, you know they're they're sometimes double that of a custodian. Now they're still all all together. They're all making less than eighty grand or hundred grand, which is a, what you need to basically kind of comfortably own a house or what have you. Yeah, like oh, a median income of a nurse practitioner is one hundred fifteen thousand a year. That's median income, not average income, but whatever. But this this difference is he's, he focuses on the money, even though most of his argument about class war is that it's a cultural one. You know, that you have professionals that influence the culture and thus influence society. They have cultural power. But also, somehow economic power because they are managing the assets or they're the, they're, they're the, I mean, they're the layer below the people who actually own things. They're still employees. That's kind of the point. That without the owning class, they still wouldn't get paid. They can still do all the work of nursing, teaching. I mean, it's it's work. They're not getting passive income, so that's like so. You know, he he kind of like doesn't like that pigeonholing or or being exact and saying like, yeah, being a capitalist is about having passive income. You know, if you're making money by hustling, you're no less of a worker. Like you know, killing killing yourself by you know rushing from place to place and spending 50 hours just getting enough cash together to pay rent. So, um, let's see. He says the 99% are divided into two groups. A bottom 90% that own... Uh, oh, yeah, and then he talks about stock ownership. Let's see. So, you could still argue, I suppose, that high-earning corporate managers and large publicly traded corporations, including those with ample stock ownership themselves, are mere agents 
of the true principles, the small number of capitalists who own the disproportionate amounts of stocks. Now, in some cases, concentrated blocks of shareholders or individuals who own many shares do influence corporate decisions. But in many firms, corporate boards are packed with the CEO's cronies and dependent on the CEO for information. While corporate managers may find it useful to claim that shareholders, including mutual funds and other institutional investors, force them to take measures unpopular with the public. Wall Street forced me to ask the board to break the union and quadruple my compensation. This can be an alibi for self-enrichment by largely autonomous managers. Now, maybe as individuals they're autonomous, but they're certainly not autonomous when it comes to capitalism, you know, which not only encourages but requires people to do this. It requires people to be out for themselves, which is why it's not so much human nature as much as the structure of our economy. So let's see, it goes through more of the stock. There was a point that I kind of like I was reviewing this. You know, if capital ownership is what defines the ruling class, then surely we should draw the line between the bottom 90% who own 12% and the top 10% who collectively own 88%. It is absurd to draw the line between the top one and everyone below and so much as the top one-tenth of the 99 alone owns two and a half times as much as the other nine-tenths of the 99%. That's a pretty top-heavy proletarian alliance. And drawing the line between 99.99% and the 0.001% would make the primitive proletarian coalition even more top-heavy. Now, again, this is really dumb because it's basically like taking the 99% slogan a little too literally, not really getting like what the point is, that in the past, there has always been the separation of types of work. You know, work you do with your hands, or work you do, or the work between blue-collar and white-collar. These labels are not, I would say, I could say they're not scientific. They're not based in a real, like, thinking about, like, there's a thinking about where these the workplaces are different. One's dirty and one's clean. But the point of the 99% slogan is to recognize that whether you have to dress well and you can afford to dress well to go into your job, or you're working at a out you're working outside or you're working in uh, with dirty stuff as a nurse does or as a cleaner you're all employees none of us own the means of our work none of us owns the production of our work we make a ton of value and we see a fraction of it that's the point it's to bring a marxist a theory of work and economy back into the public conversation and it sort of worked in that people know about the slogan they know that nurses can be in unions too along with fast food workers along with any other kind of service because we are a service and information economy right that means that there's all of these new types of workers that have been created since the 70s and they've none, none of these sectors have been unionized or there has been unionization because it's been assumed that, oh, these aren't factory jobs. They're better. Maybe you even need a little education to do them. Oh, you're doing bet well. You don't need to be unionized. But that was all a mistake, ladies and gentlemen and MBs. It was a mistake 
because it has led to the degradation of our of labor rights and the ability to get screwed in any sector you're in. Everyone gets screwed. Like Trump's architect. Very highly uh, sought after and paid. Still cheated by Trump. Still left in the cold uh, because he has to depend on the rich guy. So I'm going to give the last word in like the a debunk of the PMC issue or the topic with a a little video here from a YouTuber. He's Irish, Marxist Paul. Over the past few decades, there's been a growing trend, especially among a specific section of left liberals, to refer to what they call the PMC, or professional managerial class. The term was coined by John and Barbara Ehrenreich in the 1970s, and is perpetuated by modern social democrats like Adolf Reed Jr. Use of the term bears the attractive characteristic of appearing at a cursory glance to be rooted in a systemic Marxist class analysis, but without the baggage that proletariat and bourgeoisie carry. Indeed, it's used by some erroneously as a synonym for the term petty bourgeois. But what does it actually mean? According to the Ehrenreichs, the professional managerial class are salaried mental workers who do not own the means of production and whose major function in the social division of labour may be described broadly as a reproduction of capitalist culture and capitalist class relations. But is it fair to exclude from the proletariat heavily exploited public sector teachers, nurses and other professionals who often make less than minimum wage, are forced to work excruciatingly long hours, often unpaid, and are often at the forefront of militant workers' struggles? Actually, forget the question, is it fair to exclude them? Instead we have to ask, does it make political sense to do this? Whose interests might it serve to cordon these workers off from the rest of the working class? I'll assume that you've heard of the divide and conquer strategy. Furthermore, this is fundamentally at odds with the Marxist analysis of class, which is defined by people's material relationship to the means of production. The bourgeoisie or capitalist ruling class owns the means of production. It makes its living by virtue of that. The proletariat or working class doesn't own the means of production, and instead needs to sell its labour power in order to survive. And there are, of course, various substrata of each class. As we can see, the PMC largely fit into the latter, the proletariat, with the exception of some rich professionals like lawyers or doctors who both work and maybe have a private practice where they hire a small number of employees, in which case they would have the dual class character of the petty bourgeoisie. In 1997, Michael Parenti recognised the error in the line of thinking that led to the designation of the PMC grouping. Class gets its significance from the process of surplus extraction. The relationship between worker and owner is essentially an exploitative one, involving the constant transfer of wealth from those who labour but do not own, to those who own but do not labour. This is how some people get richer and richer without working, or with only doing a fraction of the work that enriches them, while others toil hard for an entire lifetime only to end up with little or nothing. Both orthodox social scientists and quote left ABC anatomical class theorists treat the diverse social factions within the non-capitalist class as classes unto themselves. So they speak of a blue collar class, a professional class and the like. In doing so, they claim to be moving beyond a quote reductionist Marxist dualistic model of classes. But what is more reductionist than to ignore the underlying dynamics of economic power and the conflict between capital and labour? What is more misleading than to treat occupational groups as autonomous classes, giving attention to every social group in capitalist society except the capitalist class itself, to every social conflict except class conflict? Both conventional and quote left ABC theorists have difficulty understanding that the creation of a managerial or technocratic social formation constitutes no basic change in the property relations of capitalism, no creation of new classes. 
Professionals and managers are not an autonomous class as such. Rather, they are mental workers who live much better than most other employees, but who still serve the accumulation process on behalf of corporate owners. Parenti was correct in calling out the blue-collar class, the professional class, and so on. The same level of scrutiny should be applied to other terms used by liberals such as the welfare class and the political class. Put simply, these aren't classes, just like the professional managerial class isn't. In fact, Karl Marx himself discussed the roles of managers and professionals as part of the proletariat in the appendix to Capital Volume 1. Some work better with their hands, others with their heads. One is a manager, engineer, technologist, etc. The other is overseer. The third is manual labourer or even drudge. An ever-increasing number of types of labour are included in the immediate concept of productive labour, and those who perform it are classed as productive workers, workers directly exploited by capital and subordinated to its process of production and expansion. As we see, it's clear that managers, as well as most professionals, are part of the proletariat from a Marxist perspective, unless they own the means of production. Any so-called Marxist who tries to tell you otherwise should be treated with deep suspicion and prodded on the subject. Indeed, we should also prod the Ehrenreichs on how they came to the conclusion that the PMC was a separate class to the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Let's examine their understanding of class. A class is characterised by a coherent social and cultural existence. Members of a class share a common lifestyle, educational background, kinship networks, consumption patterns, work habits, beliefs. Sure, forget your relationship to the means of production. Your consumption patterns and kinship networks are the true determinants of your class. Let's not forget your educational background, because the people who receive free third-level education in socialist countries and even social democracies are all just PMC. Why stop there? Why not suggest that class is determined by your accent, or by whether or not you enjoy classical music? As we can see clear as day, there's no place for such liberal analyses as the professional managerial class within Marxist class analysis. However, that's not to say that we should discard the notion that there are certain higher-up groups within the proletariat that may be inclined to work against their own class. Before I forget, I just want to interrupt the before the last minute of this, that you could, uh, let's say, if you feel this is like way too dense and I don't care about this Marxist analysis stuff, why do I care about the Marxist analysis? Just replace that phrase, Marxist analysis of class or something, with good politics. To have a good politics, okay interests and support the bourgeoisie. Lenin himself wrote about these potential class traitors when he described a certain strata of the working class who have been bribed with imperialist super profits and converted to watchdogs of capitalism and corruptors of the labour movement. This is definitely an issue, and it's been addressed at length already within the Marxist canon. You can look into the labour aristocracy and related groups for more on this. To wrap up, not to be rude, but the PMC is the voice of pseudo-Marxist nonsense. You should be sceptical of any so-called intellectuals you hear peddling this narrative. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't discuss professional managerial types, but it is to say that they aren't a class in the Marxist sense of the term. Thanks for watching. So why, sh why, should, why should you care? Like, like, okay, they're not this Marxist type of class. Well, it's more about recognizing that they're not like your enemy. They're not the people keeping you down. They are... As as like as a little quote from Lenin, like they're the watchdogs. They're the they are there as a barrier. You could say they're between you know a certain petty bourgeois or say like you know the the small business owner with three employees. They're between you and the people who actually own like all the land in town. And I think the like so there's two ways of looking at this kind of uh, information here in terms of like what's good politics. Who are your allies? 
if your allies are like the billionaires, then maybe you need some progressive millionaires on your side. Um, or some, you know, these uh, doctors and lawyers who usually work for, say, a corporation or something. And they're, and they're paid well. They're pretty, they're doing pretty well. Are they, are they potential allies to recruit? Usually not. Petty bourgeois, you know. They, uh, they own a little bit of their own means of production. Or they, they're really much like, you know, dependent on those who do. So, so that conservator was like, hey, you know, the, you working class clubs should actually go uh, join the Trump movement. Or it's not really Trump movement. And it shouldn't be that anymore. But, of course, it's so culturally infused that it is the Trump movement. It really can't be anything else. It doesn't. What's the movement for otherwise, except, you know, shaking your fist at the libs or the professionals, the uh, college-educated elites with their lattes and smugness. But there's the other way, which I will now cover from uh, Cosmonaut uh, to Hell with the American Gentry, finally getting hit to this article, written by a Nicholas uh, Varela, who argues against populist appeals for a common front between working class and small business owners. Small business being a very kind of broad term sometimes, uh, you know, as an apple orchard, a small business, as a warehouse, owning owning a bunch of uh, apartments, a small business. Compared to multinational corporations, it certainly is. So earlier this week, Patrick Wyman, podcaster and historian, put up an article describing the American gentry in their historical context, their political and economic power, and their support for Trump. I covered that extensively um, last time. So this gentry in the modern American context is defined by its ownership of both land and hard fixed assets, which allow it to extract rents and run small to medium-sized businesses, largely hereditary, reactionary, and sources of instrumental power in many regions. Wyman's intent appears to raise alarm bells about the danger of this class to the largely progressive readership who are more used to pointing the finger at big business monopolies like Amazon or Facebook. There was a quick retort from the unapologetic reactionaries, however, written by Dick Land Leary of the American Conservative, which I also read last time. So I'll, I'll review by reading the quote here. Quote paragraph. Why shouldn't we take the side of the gentry, with this aristocracy being the logical conclusion of this power, when compared to the threat of distant federal and corporate bureaucracies, he asks. This is a question scarcely answered by Wyman's historical and anthropological account, which asserts, on the one hand, the trans-historical reality of gentry as local administrators and centers of power, and the reactionary nature of this class on the other. But this is exactly the question I'll answer here. Now, after all, uh, back to the author. This was pretty much the subject of my 2020 essay in Palladium Magazine, which I also read in a previous episode. I didn't check what episode it was. It was like last year. Again, he says it was in 2020. Which uh, was also about the threat of this gentry to economic development and innovation. In particular, there was one incredibly absurd claim in the American conservative essay that stands out. Back to Mr. Funny Voice. But right populism is not about egalitarianism. It's about protecting the interests of the lower classes against the predation of the uppermost elites. For that, the underclasses 
need overclass allies, and the subset most likely to side with them by far is the one ordered around physical, local property and less influenced by progressive institutions that form the professional and managerial factions, a.k.a. that class. Again, I just that's why I went through all of that. Point out how what a what problem that is. At least if you're thinking in terms of material conditions, what things are really like. Not just like they listen to different music. So back to the author, Nick. This is Nick. So this argument that the lower classes needs overclass allies should be familiar on the left as it's essentially the same as the one proposed by many national liberation movements. Now, the primary contradiction is the big imperial hegemon, American empire, a empire, as a result, an alliance with the national, the national bourgeoisie, meaning this, the local gentry, the reactionary, the Trumpers, you know, it's, you, we can unite, we, we, us, disparate classes can unite around national, the national project being Americans, and then and the you know the the elitist billionaires they're they're the globetrotters they're cosmopolitan they're not like you and me <laughs> that's what makes them different that they actually like other cultures or they're internationalists to some extent but it's an international order that they're at the top of then then you get to this nationalism which fascism ain't so far behind However, this claim by Leary is simply not justifiable on the basis of a class analysis. Let's um, let's look at a more practical example here than the wordy version from Paul, uh, the Irish guy. Yeah, okay. There is simply less share of the pie available for workers when they are being exploited by such gentry. Small businesses are generally less profitable, with lower revenues and cash reserves compared to their behemoth cousins. But even when we are discussing profits, because there is a limit to what individuals can consume in a given amount of time, a smaller amount of capitalists means less surplus necessarily going towards capitalist consumption. And there's only so many yachts and trips you can buy. And, and maybe I, I think Bezos, you know, the whole going the space thing is like, what can I buy? How can I raise billionaire consumption? by including space travel, basically. So they are working at this problem. If you have the same amount of workers producing the same amount of surplus for 100 capitalists versus one, there is more possible surplus that can be reclaimed through collective actions, such as unionizing in the case of the producing of one capitalist. It's no wonder that the support for higher minimum wages is greater among big businesses like Amazon and Walmart, who can afford to pay. However, Leary's argument isn't truly economic, it's political, suggesting that such a gentry would have the underclass's real interest at heart or would tend to take their side against the big capitalists. This is historically false and logically unlikely. There is one issue, and one issue alone, on which the working class and the petty bourgeois have aligned, and that is on the issue of antitrust legislation. However, this has been done on a basis that totally screwed over the workers' movement. The bourgeois state electing to break up monopolies rather than expropriating them did nothing but ensure continued and expanded social surplus for capitalists at the expense of workers. On every other class-based issue, conflict remains. When it comes to cultural and identity-based issues, 
the split is just as well between small and medium-sized capitalists as it is with workers. What makes the Trump wing of the Republican Party unique with regard to petty bourgeois power is not necessarily the numbers of small business owners, which are only slightly overrepresented, 40% Republican and 29% Democrats. It is their level of organization and militancy. With Trump's right populism, they find an ideological current to match their economic one, an ideology that demands action from them and which they use to make demands on the state. Leary's claim, much like the claim of left liberals who favor the cultivation of a racial bourgeoisie as an antidote to the social problems of a given racial group, you know, just create some rich black people and there we've solved race. You know, we have Oprah, we have Kanye, race is solved. It's the paternalism of what Zizek, Slavoj Zizek called the postmodern father of the boss, which insists, no, we really are all family, despite all the expropriate, uh, exploitation and the petty tyranny. It is a crueler and more insidious form of social control than simply playing the cold administrator in those giant bureaucracies Leary so decries. The height of these powerful bureaucracies also happen to be the height of the working class's share of income in the U.S., so that's something to take note of, you know, in big, bad welfare state. It's also when the working class was doing the best. Huh. And it's funny. Uh, the rise of the American gentry as a class was a direct result of breaking this working class power. American corporations atomized production in order to protect profits and capitalist consumption potential, creating a massive wave of small businesses. The gentry really did not exist before this point prior to the 70s, and the only kind of small enterprise with any real number of economic power were family farms, which basically currently barely exist anymore. The aristocracy suggested by the deep thinkers at the American conservative, an aristocracy of world historical bourgeois mediocrity, mediocrities, uh, is a society where creative destruction is replaced with stagnant decay. To perpetuate the atomization they cling to would require the abolition of both any disruption that would naturally form a market leader, as well as the accumulation required to fund expensive research, development, or investment in anything new, or any production without state support. The world of the modern American aristocracy would be a world where the only access is the access afforded to the regional lords where once people suffered capitalism and its exploitation to see the great material progress brought about by its technical innovations, people will suffer brutal exploitation only so that the local car dealership owner can afford a new vacation home in British Columbia or throw money at the latest candidate promising to kill critical race theory or whatever the object of the current moral panic is. This is no trivial hypothetical. The rise of Trump inaugurated a new antitrust regime in the federal government, one that has been continued by the Biden administration, which is more aggressive in going after the high-tech monopolies. It's something left and right can agree on, as it said. Uh, this new tactic, which even has wide support in social democratic circles, is one of the greatest obstacles to the development of working-class power. Yeah. It's pretty counterintuitive, right? Basically, it is the left-wing argument for that the development of monopolies is a good thing because once you unionize, you get more from that. You get more from the big monopoly than you do trying to unionize a 
the thousand, the million little lights. You know, you have to organize each little light, each little small business. But there, it's actually true when the business owner says, oh, I can't afford to pay a living wage. I have to squeeze. My budget's tight. Mm. Because when it comes down to it, small businesses may be the backbone of the economy, but it's also really inefficient. There's a lot of waste along the way. So Marx, let's turn to Marx then. In the final chapters of Capital, he describes the process by which capitalism would be brought to its historical conclusion. Now you might take this as dogmatic. It's more a hypothesis. Updating what he had written many years earlier in the manifesto is worth quoting here. That which is now being expropriated, yeah, expropriated is no longer the laborer working for himself, but the capitalist exploiting many laborers. You know, not just a few employees, but millions. This expropriation is accomplished by the action of the uh, eminent laws of capitalist production itself, by the centralization of it. Now, it creates mono you know, monopoly. That capital naturally creates, in free markets, quote-unquote free markets, unregulated, monopolies naturally occur. Right? So it's assumed that one capitalist always kills many others. Hand-in-hand hand with this centralization, you know, just like how Amazon eats up all the booksellers and whatnot, or this expropriation of many capitalists by few, develop on an ever-extending scale the cooperative form of the labor process. You know, by having all the centralization, unionization becomes possible. The conscious technical application of science, the methodological cultivation of the soil, the transformation of the instruments of labor into instruments of labor only by usable, usable in common, meaning having large machines that take a group of people to use instead of just like a single hand tool. Let's see. Uh, only, yeah. The economizing of all means of production by their use as means of production of combined socialized labor. By socialized labor, he doesn't mean it's like commonly owned. He means like the work has to be done in groups. Uh, the entanglement of all peoples in the net of the world market, and with this, the international character of the capitalist regime. So, go back to Nick. With ever greater socialization of production and even fewer capitalists benefiting and actually administering, the working class can expropriate these enterprises which are no longer compatible with market coordination and private property. Working class power itself, its political organization and strength is, according to Marx, driven directly by this greater socializing of production, which brings the whole working class of the world together to cooperate. You know, by having a global economy, it means that we, as Americans, can talk to people in China, to talk to people in the Middle East with translation apps and whatever, or learn languages through apps like Duolingo, whatever. It, just, we, it brings us all closer together. That's what makes, say, the worldwide republic less of a fantasy and more of a reality. And you can say, oh, Marx failed to predict this stuff. No, actually he did. It just takes longer than, you know, his lifetime or the lifetime after him. Just as like the the issue or the, the lie comes in and saying like, oh, now that we've like started the Soviet Union, we've reached this end of history or something like that. Of course, any proclamation of the end of history or that history has move to the next stage beyond capitalism, you know, that's to be taken with a grain of salt. 
So back to the topic at hand. The American gentry and their class ideology of right populism finds that their mission is to bring this process to a screeching halt, to break the wheel of capital's historical progress, to arrest the scientific rationalization of production, you know, making things more efficient, the fact that Amazon is able to deliver things in mere days when, uh, let's say, you know, little warehouse owner, you know, would take a week. That's what rationalization means. Uh, they would rather the, and also could refer to the automation of things, which could, has only been possible through, like, the big centralization of things. So it kind of puts a new spin that, like, it isn't all nightmare scenario with cyber, the cyber dystopia of our times, that this is all kind of the process that is kind of like it's natural as far as capitalism goes. And it, uh, it, it can go somewhere positive. <laughs> Uh, or at least, uh, as others have observed, liberals, it has some positive benefits. Now it's just a matter of, can this actually benefit everyone equally? Or can we have more egalitarian politics now? When will that happen? Yeah. Yeah. And to destroy the preconditions, and they also want to destroy, the American gentry, the preconditions of working class organization just kind of like the next step or the thing that needs to happen for good, you know, things can get better. They would rather the U.S. become the new Austro-Hungarian empire, the backwater of developed countries, than to allow workers to gain power and see that they can no longer make a living off their property titles alone. The reactionaries would have us believe that it's perfectly rational to side with the MAGA-hatted boomer, with a beamer, McMansion, and 25-footer over the big capitalists. We should have a common cause with our local quaintness, they say. But why should we? Even when we speak of local politics, it's these same people who defund our schools, run Dercronian homeowner associations, and cheer on corrupt local police. Socialists in Vermont created land trusts and public spaces for everyone. The petty bourgeoisie, in contrast, fight for an endless sprawl of car washes, 7-Elevens, and unaffordable atomized housing. On a practical basis, it is this class that we confront in our communities much more than any other. Due to the desert of political participation in this country, in many places that rule largely unopposed, being the only class with the independent wealth necessary to even pursue a public life. A fact which sets up this bizarre hubris among the reactionary gentry with their claims of being the real representatives of the underclass. For review purposes, underclass refers to anyone who's basically perpetually poor. We should absolutely take the side of the big monopolies against this gentry. In fact, the big capitalists like Bezos, Zuckerberg, and the Walton family are more ready allies than any of the political leadership of the Democratic Party, or the Republican one for that matter, or even the vast state ideological apparatus of civil society, the universities, and nonprofits. The reality of this is quite simple. The big capitalists have a structural role that entails the killing of other capitalists as economic entities. It is true, the big capitalists are interested in crushing any working class political power. But then so is the ideological apparatus of the, of the state, of the liberal state, and the class power of the gentry. Indeed, one can argue that the others are far more effective at it. Whenever local pockets of working-class electoral action emerge, it is this gentry's opposition that really that they encounter first. And then second, the opposition of the larger state 
apparatus, meaning liberal media institutions or whatever, or nonprofits. Uh, it's only within these large firms themselves and their supply chains that the big capitalists concern themselves with local issues, as Amazon did in Bessemer, Alabama, the shutdown and unionization drive. In Marx's time, there was still discussion of collaborating with petty bourgeois parties to achieve bourgeois democracy, meaning liberal democracy. Even while struggling for an independent workers' party and moving beyond that said liberal democracy, however, the petty bourgeois of today are no longer so interested in Republican democracy, as evidenced by both January 6th insurrection and even the article by Leary, which openly advocated for aristocracy. So obsolete are they, having been made tactically economically unnecessary over the last 50 years, or 50 years ago, that they can only enforce this order through pure repression. Thus, the dogmatic devotion to police power um, and, uh, and all sorts of things. <laughs> the truth of this obsoles obsolescence is fundamentally what escapes the liberal progressive criticism provided by Wyman in the article that set all this off. Unable to articulate the historical particularity of a capitalist mode of production or its limits, Wyman has simply left to offer historical comparisons and note the political support for Trump from this gentry. There is little possibility for actually doing anything about this social force in the framework he gives. One can either appeal to big capitalists themselves and those in their orbit, or one can resign to our fate as the real struggle takes place among these factions of capitalists, so long as we do not not take on our historical mission to build a workers' party. Ultimately, this is not simply a problem for the U.S., the problem of allocating surplus with limited economic growth is one that has had a time-honored consistent solution for those societies that are unable to give up the bloated accesses of their ruling classes. That solution has been imperialism. It should be noted that Trump's insistence on withdrawing the U.S. military across the world wasn't so much about non-intervention as securing better terms of payment for U.S. support to turn the U.S. empire once again into a profit-making enterprise. Due to strategic nuclear arsenals, it is no longer possible to conduct the kind of wars that would vastly reduce foreign capital and competition to rubble, which is what happened in World War II. Therefore, saving profit rates from their inevitable decline, however, more extensive exploitation of natural resources and labor in the uh, lower Americas and Africa is possible. The continued rise of petty bourgeois power entails a movement away from the global trade system supported by the American military and instead towards the old way of our exclusive spheres of influence. Almost done. Because of this necessity of imperialism to support such an aristocracy, this paradise for the gentry will still entail massive financial monopolies, only ones that are pointed outward rather than inward. This is necessary to impose the vast rents on the countries within the empire's sphere of influence, meaning our American allies abroad. A never-ending primitive accumulation is the sublime American dream they so desire, a stillborn world, one where capitalism's explicit social relations are suspended in time and the real logic of capital suppressed 
so as to prevent any threat to those same relations. You know, keep the other capitalists at bay. It is a big rat race after all, right? So in contrast, the gentry's destruction can only entail a better world for pretty much everyone involved. As it turns out, we are actually quite lucky that Marx was wrong about this. His claim, known as the immiseration thesis, that expanding monopoly resulting from a consolidation of development would create ever more misery for the working class, it kind of actually turned out to be incorrect. The economies of scale and socialization of production that he correctly identified as nurturing working class power also enabled labor to get more of surplus for itself as the economy expanded referring to the uh, mid-century boom times. Adding rents to increased wages uh, beyond their subsistence level. The battle for unionization against Amazon is a winnable one, but such a battle against vast atomized networks of small business owners isn't. The working class position, or leftist position, whatever, in the developed world, meaning America, should be really quite simple. Expropriate expropriate, expropriate. Capitalists expropriating capitalists. The state expropriating capitalists. The working class itself then expropriating the state. We can skip steps where possible, though the first step, of course, is to bury the American gentry. And just like that, I've reached the end of the hour. Um, yeah, so... Let's meet me back in the second hour, folks, uh, where I will be talking about, I'll be going off of this class analysis stuff, though I'm not really leaving it behind, but I'm going to shift it over to talking about working class power in uh, the, in the post-pandemic, I, I, we could call it, uh, you know, the great resignation, labor shortages, those buzzwords, and I'll be deeping, going deeper into those concepts and kind of try to puzzle out what's going on but also kind of talk about college as well. So let's, let's go about that the other side of the break. Breaking news from the Occupy Red Robin movement. The protesters have decreased in number from two to one, as one of the protesters has apparently splintered off from the group to start a new movement, Occupy the Restroom. Tom, Occupy the Restroom has been going on for almost 30 minutes now. Certainly a sign that this country is more divided than ever. These 99 percenters are fed up, and as a result, you can clearly see this restroom is occupied. Uh, Tom, it looks like the movement is finished, but from the time it took, it must have been a pretty decent sized movement.
Okay, that was I Feel the Weight by Mike Snow. Not a political song for once, but kind of representing my mood. You know, I feel the weight. Feel the way of the world. Weight of history. History moves, folks. How does it move? I just want to do, I don't know if I would call this an addendum, but it's, it's, it's something I came across. Wall Street Journal advertised to me uh, via Facebook. This article just kept coming up over and over, and eventually I caved and read it. I didn't have to pay for it, so whatever. Or my time and my eyeballs, so whatever. Uh, the price to pay, I suppose, of the digital economy. But it's it's about college, but also about men in college. Hey, I'm masculine. Maybe I could I could talk about masculine issues without falling into the traps of men's men's rights or anti-feminism. No, no, no. Don't have to do that at all. In fact, I consider it form of radical feminism or a form of egalitarian, you know, you got to be egalitarian. So you want that gender parity, okay? One of the goals is to have some kind of gender parity. I don't mean sex parity, I mean gender parity, okay? They are different things. But anyway. But there's also, I, I want to read this this time, this episode, because it overlaps with that PMC culture uh, analysis of, like, you know, college matters, but also college is a commodity, especially since the 70s. The real big issue here is that college is a commodity that as a consumer good from the post 70s onward it it's it's kind of encouraged the trend of a trend that individualizes ourselves in all things it it collapses community or any kind of identity or belonging this kind of comes up to me especially i maybe it's the beast the digital beast see i just started a job uh, i i guess i won't i don't know if it's i'm allowed to say where but it involves the uh, New York State College system. So it's something I'm more interested in and being exposed to various things. And I was reading the uh, some articles from the, basically it's like the magazine of higher education. And there was a, I followed a bunch of articles about the kind of challenges to the Greek system, you know, fraternities, and how a number of colleges have been, because of the hashtag MeToo movement, Various uh, the the kind of transition of campus activism being about representation, identity, social justice type of um, type of issues. There's kind of like you know there's it kind of mirrors or parallels the kind of police discussion of you know you reform fraternities or do you just go to abolish them or do you abolish gender segregated fraternities, making them all co-ed. But then, as the maybe the radfems would argue, it's like, well, now you're taking away women's only spaces. That that's something that's very unfeminist of you to do. I would like to argue about that a bit. I also have some other points, but that's that's going to be in the, more in the next uh, left wing culture war episode. I, I guess I, I call those. But it's uh, the the article from the Wall Street Journal here is called "A Generation of American Men Give Up on College." A number of men, the number of men enrolled at two and four year colleges has fallen be- have fallen behind women by record levels and a widening gap across the US. So this is over obviously the Wall Street Journal is not going to talk about things 
Oh no, they're requiring me to go with a paywall. Well, I'll actually just found or I was linked to something that allows me to hop a paywall, but I'm not going to. I need to experiment to know how it works, how to do it quickly. But otherwise, oh, you know what? I will just. Um, I don't need to read it. I'll just summarize it. It's faster that way. I'll just summarize it that for the last, I don't know if it's 10 years or it's at least on my radar it's been. Maybe it's because it's since I left college. It seems like I see all these liberals and progressives kind of putting out memes. Or it's not just them. It's all kinds of moderates or all kinds of Americans, I guess. Walks of life. Putting out memes and talking points about how, look, college isn't for everybody. And also, with college being so expensive... Everyone or more people need to go into technical college, you know, and these are people who have college degrees usually in my experience. So like, I don't challenge them so much on this because it's like, ugh, it's not like they're making the worst point. The, the main representative is like saying, oh, you know, a, a blue collar, you know, trade worker makes more money now than, uh, than the person with the liberal arts degree, basically making it. An either or binary, that's problem number one, making them there this this exclusive division between a a technical education and a liberal education. Now if you need it explained, um, not to be um, sarcastic or condescending, but liberal education refers to the well-rounded knowledge base of being like a citizen. Of being able to, I can I can summarize it as this: it's the ability to not get scammed, not get scammed by demagogues, political or otherwise, to not get scammed in the economics space, to not get scammed intellectually by charlatans and pseudo intellectuals and whatnot. To be able to read critically, to think critically. This is something that, at least in New York and other maybe other quote unquote blue states that secondary and primary education has attempted to shift towards, I'm not seeing it. In fact, it's it's kind of a tension that like there's both the pressure or the, the Montessori free school movement to get more liberal arts into our primary and secondary schools. But at the same time, there's the trend and the money to get make the more like technical schools. Like we need to prepare people, the kids for the real world of the labor market. They need to be ready to be workers because that's kind of what schooling has always been, training good workers. And then any education reform, charter schools, what have you, is about training the next generation, the next, the future of the workforce. Not the future of citizens, but of workforce. And this has been applied to the college level, which has, at least historically, always been about training leaders and citizens. That's what being educated meant. It meant the ability to manage the economy, yes, but also to do empowering work, to be an empowered citizen. And just going to technical school ain't cutting it. Now, I regret, and or rather, if I'm going to go into school in the future, get a second degree or whatever, it's going to be a technical one, I assure you. I want both for myself and everybody else. And thus the political goal is free college, free a point of service, what, or what have you. That was part of the Bernie Sanders movement. It's democratic social politics. Anything left of Elizabeth Warren includes that. So it's really weird 
and I usually don't see it that often, but I get an argument when this comes up with people I feel should be the left of Elizabeth Warren, but maybe they're not. They see this dichotomy between a technical school education and a liberal education and seeing them as separate or that you can only pick one, maybe you can only afford one, or seeing one is inherently better than the other because of future potential I- income. You know, oh, you got your philosophy degree and how you're, you're stuck doing a, a service uh, sector work or you're stuck as a barista. Ha 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 ha. Dude, I don't care. I'd rather have plumbers that have taken a philosophy course and I want my managers or my accountants to also know how to change a light bulb or, or like uh, to not uh, you know just freeze up when uh, the heat's off and not know like what to do about it, who, what, what to check, you know, how to bleed the pipes. Well-rounded education includes all of these things. And the fact that it doesn't, that there's this tug of war between making schools more technical and preparing people to be workers or being citizens and empowered members of society by knowing how to be lifelong learners is a frustrating conversation when it comes down to that. And that men or the masculine people are caught in the middle and they're basically told to make money right away, go into technical schools, uh, if at all, or, uh, or, or they're from some uh, reactionary place, and they're saying, oh, you know, they're hostile places. They're not for me because of all the women saying that they're, they don't want to be raped. <laughs> As if, like, you know, when men go to college that they can't commit a sexual assault or that they're automatically be painted in that corner. I can tell you I wasn't. But I, I went to a school in Manhattan, so what do, what do I know about uh, college? So yeah, that's that's the article there. What else do I have in my notes before I wrap this up? Yeah, so like that PMC thing from uh, the first hour, you know, college versus non-college. To have a free egalitarian society, tritary education, aka college education, it should be just as required as secondary, right? It should be part of life, especially since. We're all living a little longer. Well, rather, in America, expected life expectancy has gone down a little bit. But let's assume we can get out of the collective funk of pandemic and bad health, or bad health health comes from our healthcare system. Uh, if we can fix a lot of other things, we'll all live a little bit longer. We'll all have a decade on our lives. We can think, oh, yeah, I can spend a bit more of my life to make sure the rest of it is as good as it possibly can be, that I'm going to be as smart as I can be, that that I'm not going to be able to be scammed, that I can be an engaged citizen and make sure that everything's just a little bit better. And that way we don't have these divisions of college-educated versus non-college-educated, manager versus unmanager. We can all we can all kind of actually like get over those like um, reactionary takes of like, oh, you can't have democratic workplaces because some people, most people are really dumb and selfish. Well, why do you think they are? It's because they're not well-educated. They didn't have a well-rounded education. This used to be the argument against teaching people to read. Oh, majority of the workforce don't need to know how to read. Until they did. And now, majority of workforce needs to know how to collate. (laughs) 
or, or what have you. Uh, or how to um, do permaculture. Yes, yes, something like that. Okay, so on the subject of workforce and the lack of planning of it, because that's kind of uh, what it comes... Uh, another issue that was mentioned in the article, I think, or others is like, oh, we need more uh, tradesmen. tradesmen. We don't have enough tradesmen. They're kind of ignoring the fact that there's gatekeepers in the trades as well, that there is kind of a cap on like apprenticeships and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, you can go to a technical school and get a degree in construction or some type of engineering, but that does not guarantee you a job. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have a place in the uh, sector, what have you. It's, it's kind of the same in, at any level. But you can oh, go into work uh, on your own or something like that. But you will have more power. I mean, there's a reason those tradesmen have high incomes. Because they're unionized. They, they, they bargain collectively together because their services are so necessary. And speaking of necessary services, let's go right to the story from Common Dreams about Striketober. It's in full swing as nearly... 100,000 workers authorize work stoppages. You might say workers have declared a national general strike until they get better pay and improve working conditions, said former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Guy I don't particularly like, but he's okay. He's okay for a lib. Uh, this is written by Julie Connolly last week. Quotes Reich again. He was a secretary under Clinton, and now he's kind of a sock dem. Uh, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich observed Wednesday that with employees and industries across the spectrum set the strike in coming days following corporate leaders' failure to meet their demands for fair pay and working conditions, the U.S. is closer than it has been in decades to experiencing something of a general strike. Well, no one calls it a general one, but in its own disorganized way, it's related to the organized strikes breaking out across the America. In Hollywood TV, film crews, John Deere... Alabama coal, Nabisco, Kellogg workers, nurses in California, healthcare workers in Buffalo. Blue collar and white collar, oh, they're, they're all striking. I would say they're all working class. Kind of makes that um, makes that first writer just so silly to say like, but they're so different in incomes. Yeah, well, they're all struggling. They're all struggling to pay rent. See, they, but see, they just work, they live in different places, so their income's... Maybe their median salaries are different because these workers live in cities where the rents are higher and the cost of living are higher because of land speculation, whatever else. And the others are living in Alabama and the cost of living is a little lower. About 10,000 workers at farm equipment manufacturer John Deere are set to walk out Thursday if the company fails to negotiate a contract that satisfies the demands of the United Auto Workers there. With 90% of members voting on Sunday, 90% voted down a tentative agreement over pension plan changes and what they viewed as inadequate pay raises, boosting compensation by 5 to 6%, considering the company's skyrocketing profits this year with a net income between $5.7 to $9 billion. We're not asking to be millionaires. We are asking for fair wages, a pension, and post-retirement health care, one employee told. WQAD, the ABC affiliate in Illinois. After 30 years or more of giving your body to a company moving a thousand pound castings around or assembling tractors, it rips your body apart. It's not unreasonable to not want to have to worry in life of what if. 
More than 24,000 nurses and other health care workers in California and Oregon have voted on Monday to authorize a strike after contract negotiations with their employer, Kaiser Permanent, stalled. The workers are demanding relief from pandemic-related burnout, 4% annual raises, and an increase in hiring. After voting to authorize a strike earlier this month, 60,000 film and TV crew workers could go on strike on Monday if the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents hundreds of production companies, fails to offer a contract that allows employees sufficient time off. Workers frequently work 12-hour days, often without meal breaks, and get only 10 hours off in between workdays, while the lowest paid has just enough time to get home, sleep for six hours, and then go right back. Wonderful. While the lowest pay crew members earn less than a living wage, according to uh, the International Alliance of Sage Employees. Striked over is a function of greedy bosses trying to recoup the unrecoupable, tweeted Jonas Loeb, communication director of that union. The recent strike authorizations and impending possible work stoppages come as thousands of people are already striking for fair working conditions, including 1,400 Kellogg plant workers in several states, 1,100 miners at Warrior Met Coal, who have been fighting for a fair contract since April, and the 2,000 hospital workers in New York. The nationwide wave of worker solidarity involves the kind of numbers you don't see anymore. Well, you see them now, tweeted the HuffPo labor reporter. Now, keep in mind, these are all the unions that basically kind of still exist. They're the ones that are left. But they're able to fight a little bit more. What of everyone else? Reich wrote that with frontline workers across the country, this is why I don't always read Common Dreams, they're very much focused on these left intelligentsia or the, you know, they're, they're, I mean, it's just sock them, so it's, they're focused on sock them thinkers and quoting things like that. Corporate America wants to frame this as a labor shortage, wrote Reich. Wrong. What's really going on is more accurately described as a living wage shortage, a hazard pay shortage, a health care shortage, a paid sick leave shortage, and a health care shortage. Unless these shortages are rectified, many Americans won't return to work anytime soon. Maybe I should have read this last. Because um, the uh, next two are all about that worker shortage and kind of puzzling over it. But this kind of, uh, right kind of succincts it as this is the left of center view of the labor shortage that it's a shortage of supply on the supply side of the economy's part and so we get to demand a little bit more well we're going to demand something some of that surplus or that shortage that these shortages be filled before we actually go back to work business as usual of course it won't be business as usual anymore as the, uh, the theater union members' potential strike grew near, the union pointed out that some of its members, stagehands and theater tech workers at North Shore Music Theater in Beverly, Mass., secured livable wages after striking for just one day this month. Sometimes, sometimes a one-day strike is all you need. That crew were previously paid 60% less than the industry area average, but will now be receiving wages starting at 18 an hour. The AFL-CIO president, Liz Schuler, told The Hill 
that uh, the striketober movement shows that the, with economic inequality getting worse and worse, unions are the solution. This is the capitalist system that has driven us to the brink, Schuler said. Unite here, which represents a 300,000 hospitality employees, express solidarity with the workers taking part in striketober and urge them to see themselves as in a position of power. It is clear that we are in a significant moment for union organizing, said the union. What we cannot do is lose this moment. The so-called labor shortage, which we know is really just a shortage of jobs that pay us enough to live on, is a powerful bit of leverage workers have over employers right now. You know what scares bosses? Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants. They are scared of worker solidarity. Striketober is terrifying the bosses. All right. With So this is a blog called The Sunday Morning Post. I believe it is just this man's blog, a Ben Sprague. It's titled, Where Are All the Workers? He only has about uh, 500 subscribers, um, but somehow this got uh, shared to me. And I liked it as a rundown of the kind of issues involved with the quote-unquote worker shortage. So starting from uh, Ben's writing here. My wife and I managed to get a few kid-free hours to ourselves last weekend while our three balls of energy spent the day at their grandparents'. We went out to dinner at a local restaurant and were greeted by the hostess, who promptly told us that it would be at least a 30-minute wait. We eyed the dining area behind her, noticing it was barely half full. We're understaffed, she answered, without us actually asking the question out loud. Let me first say this. People should be especially nice right now to workers in restaurants and retail. There is no reason to be annoyed or frustrated with the person who is there serving you. At least they showed up. It's not their fault that their business doesn't have enough workers. Tip bigly, but more importantly than that, be patient and kind. While our experience is just an anecdotal example, I suspect many people reading this have experienced something similar in recent months. And it's not just leisure and hospitality businesses either. Bus drivers, plumbers, teachers, nurses, you name it. And the industry is probably short staff. So where are all the workers? Let's dig in. First, the labor force participation rate. So the chart above, which shows a extremely, it's a line graph, which basically shows that half of the workforce that stopped working during the pandemic, especially the, the lockdown section of it in mid-2020, uh, only half have actually come back to the workforce as of a uh, last summer. So the chart above shows the labor force participation rate over the past five years. A clear drop is evident upon the outset of COVID-19 when employment plummeted around the country as businesses shut down either by choice or by mandate. What the chart also shows, however, is that even though employment rebounded in the months that followed the initial drop, the overall number of Americans in the workforce still lags somewhat significantly behind pre-COVID numbers. So that provides the participation rate is a technical term that represents a ratio of the total number of people in the workforce, which actually includes both people who are working and people who are actively looking for work, to the total non-institutionalized population, which includes all Americans age 16 and older who are not incarcerated or in a healthcare institution like a nursing home or long-term care facility. 
According to the Bureau of Labor Stats, August 2021, there were 261 million non-institutionalized Americans in the workforce and a workforce of 161.5 million, which yields a labor force participation rate of 61 and a bit percent. As illustrated in the chart above, it is not exactly fair to compare August 2021 with August 2020 because COVID was in high gear last year. The employment scene was not exactly typical for that time of year. The fair compensation is August 2019, when the labor force participation rate was 63%. So it decreased from 63% to 61, which might not seem that significant, but a 1.5% decline actually represents nearly 4 million workers. That is 4 million fewer people in the workforce at the same point that there were in 2019. So my main readers might be interested to note, and this is where he lives, I guess, that this national phenomenon has played out similarly in Maine. And by the way, this I this might have been implied to me or linked to me because I was just in Maine last month. So the fact that, he, I don't know if he lives in Bar Harbor, Maine, but I was just there. So, okay. I got Maybe I got to make a note of where I see articles, but... I think it's just random leftist groups and it's just coincidence, but nothing is truly coincidence, folks. Anyway, uh, so he also looked at the same rate in Maine. So in Maine, July 2021, it was 60%. In July 2019, it was also 62 It declined 2.2%, and that's 678,000 people. The decrease in labor force participation rate represents a loss of approximately 15,000 Mainers who are simply not active in the workforce anymore. Why? From 06 to 2010, I worked for the Boston Red Sox. Yes, it was a dream job. A group of co-workers and I would do pub trivia at Boston Billiards near Fenway Park nearly every Wednesday night. An older co-worker who was a former school teacher gave us a piece of advice before we went out one night, saying, they ask a question about which state in the U.S. is the home of something or produces the most of something or has the best of something, just say California. California is always the answer. Well, a recurring theme in my articles over the past few months is that if you're looking to understand or explain anything these days, there is really just one primary variable that is driving our collective behavior, COVID-19. So I have five hypotheses to explain why there is not enough workers right now all of which are somehow related to the ongoing pandemic. No single hypothesis is the only answer, but I think they are all contributing to the current shortage of workers. So this guy's kind of still taking it from a supply point of view. Supply side, Reaganomic, you know. It's, like, it's just not enough workers. We're, you know, workers are gone. But I think he, he, he does dovetail with um, the actual issue here. Uh, pointed out by the union strike uh, piece. Number one, older workers aren't risking it. In 2020, there were 35.3 million American workers over the age of 55, according to the Bureau of Labor Stats. Just one year prior, pre-COVID, there were 37 million. So that's 2 million less. Decrease of 2 million workers age 55 and older. Data is not yet available for 2021, but I have to think the decline in the number of older workers has continued or at least not bounced back. Given the negative outcomes, 
of COVID, including both serious illness and death disproportionately impacting older people versus younger. It is not surprising at all that many older workers have simply decided they're not going to risk it by exposing themselves to interactions with customers and coworkers. There are many people who have retired from their careers and may still want to work as a source of some extra dollars as a hobby job in retirement, or simply because they love to work and don't want to be bored. But for those who are able to financially sustain themselves without working, why expose yourself to the virus if you don't have to? I know several school teachers, for example, who are eligible to retire, but were continuing to work because they love to teach. Once COVID became as serious as it did, they basically said to heck with it. They're done. So maybe a lot of others did too. And I like that um, that phrase, the hobby job. Like you only need a hobby job to kind of make ends meet. And that's kind of the space I've been in since uh, for last six years. But now I'm working full-time again, um, not because I had to. Well, I had to if I want to kind of progress in life goals, as I guess. But um, not in terms of work, but in just in terms of acquiring property or acquiring some means of production or means of, yeah, means of living. But I've kind of been working at hobby jobs, working alongside the semi or retired. Pastas too. Home construction is pulling workers from other industries. It's hot. Housing market's hot, guys. I've written about how the rapid increase in home prices around the country is actually not a bubble, similar to 2017. But the lack of smaller and more affordable homes and how the market has been particularly strong here in Maine. So I don't dwell on further analysis of housing markets today. But one thing I have been noticing in my bank work this summer, he works for a bank, is that many workers are swarming into the construction field to take advantage of such a hot market. This is just based on observation, and I don't have data to back it up. Oh, thanks. But I especially see a lot of younger men age 18 35 working as a part of home construction crews or apprenticing for plumbers and electricians. And why not? These guys are tripping over work with no real end in sight. Yeah, right, okay. Every home builder I know is busy beyond belief. Many are booking projects into 2023 at this point. By the way, booking a project doesn't mean that it's going to A, happen, or B, you'll be paid for it. Because I'm sure there are plenty of people who had projects booked in 2005, uh, and then by 2009, they were in the gutter. Construction and contracting and trades, it's feast or famine. That's why they're always like, yeah, they're tripping over work some years, and then other years, they're like, I'll build whatever you want, whatever it is, casinos, puppy killing factories, whatever I want. We want, we need those jobs. <laughs> please fund the jobs, please. But anyway, he says he doesn't back it up. But again, maybe you're seeing all these younger men going to construction because they've been either economically forced to or encouraged to by all kinds of media and societal societal forces that basically said, oh, you're just not the right fit for college. Hey, you can't even afford it anyway. Who wants to go into all that debt? Just go into a trade instead. You'll be nice and exploitable that way. That's the way I see it. Of course, I would like to be able to build things. And uh, yeah, it's, you can do both. Wait list for everything from roofers to plumbing. Yeah, it's, okay, it's hot. By the way, 
Construction and trades are not the only housing-related fields drawing workers. Real estate agents, too, have swelled in number over the past year and a half to the point where there are now more real estate agents in the U.S. than homes for sale. What? Now, there's a link here. Do you, do, dare I touch it? I haven't touched it. I've touched it. It's an NPR piece. Too many real estates. It's an audio, but it's very short. Any given day, you're likely to see about half a million homes for sale, and there are 1.5 million members of the National Association of Realtors. Economist Sonia Gibhark, with co-author Paul Goldsmith, Goldsmith Pickman, finds that this isn't just a problem for real estate agents facing extra competition. Their new working paper finds that too many new real estate agents selling homes can make downturns worse for the entire housing market. Yeah. Okay. So number three is limited immigration. Let's breeze through this. U.S. government issues non-immigration visas each year for people who want to visit the U.S. on a temporary basis. This is all kind of stopped. Oh, yeah, he refers to states like Maine that have a large tourism industry rely on foreign workers on a seasonal basis to work in restaurants, hotels, and all manner of other industries, including fishing and agriculture. Bar Harbor, Maine, for example, brings in hundreds, if not thousands, of workers each summer from the Caribbean, Latin America, Europe, and Asia. Hmm. So if Maine has all of these employment troubles or, like, you know, where... We need job creation in Maine. I, I think it's just because they're temporary. They're only for the season. And unless you're making enough money for the rest of the year, which likely you aren't because these are all mostly small businesses in Bar Harbor, they can only afford immigration wages. They can't afford living wages for people who live in Maine. And therein lies some of the problems there. So it mentions that there have been two problems of late. However, the first and most notable is that the global movement has been severely restricted. People just aren't traveling due to travel bans. So, yeah, less tourism and also the ability of, uh, of temporary workers. The, see, the second challenge is that the caps on work visas have not been increased, even as demand for these workers among businesses has grown. Businesses are clamoring for more war foreign workers. Oh, I wonder why. But the politics of it, all have been limiting. <laughs> By the way, another limiting variable is the lack of affordable housing in some of the hottest tourism markets, including places like Bar Harbor, perhaps a topic for a future art. Interesting thing about Bar Harbor was, as a tourist town, it still had the air of a real town. Like, there was parks where I could tell these were local people using them. Uh, they had a local tennis court. And the school was placed in town. Like these, these are things that uh, Lake George, I would compare it with. When you move, when you drive through Lake George, like it's a complete strip mall. It doesn't feel like a. It's a village, you know. But Bar Harbor at least looks like a town, even if all the houses are, I don't know, Airbnbs. But it also look like real people live there too. Hypothesis four, which is actually probably backed up by, but also mentioned by the sock Dems, uh, or leftists, is there's a lack of child care is keeping parents at home, especially mothers and grandmothers. All through 2020, child care facilities and schools around the country were shut down. As much as it became possible for many white-collar workers to work from home, this luxury was not afforded, afforded to all. 
Hourly workers, shifts workers, and other blue-collar trades in particular had generally speaking no such option. So there's another way like you can try to separate um, working people into classes, those that can work from home and automate, and those that can't. So there certainly was that uh, separation there. But it's kind of, it's a separation of like issues for people. So they're, they're, they're again, they're cultural classes or they're, they're a type of worker, sure, a category. But the, the discussion earlier in the show was about more about political categories of like, who are the economic allies here? Even though like, because just as, um, you have workers who've been working from home and they want more flexible work schedules so they can work at home more. I mean, they didn't lose productivity and okay. So yeah, I think I'll get that in the next one. You probably heard this before that like, and I've covered this even as the pandemic was starting that, you know, I could even see in the first weeks that everyone was basically having a wake up call of like, what have I been doing with my life going to a, cubicle office, you know, and like I could do my job at home just as well. Why am I going into an office? And then the next question would be, why am I not being paid more? I'm making all the value here. I'm doing all the work. If, if What is the manager there for except to manage, manage me at work? And if I can do all the work and create all the value at home without the manager, what's the manager doing there for? And so on and so on. And then eventually, hopefully, it leads to a logical chain of thought of, this is all bull. Capitalism sucks. Let's build a commons. The lack of child care. A Gallup study from several months ago estimated that in February 2021, there were 2 million fewer women in the workforce in this country than one year prior which would have been just prior to COVID hitting the U.S. In addition to child care responsibilities, the study also posited that women are more likely to be in frontline positions that have been more impacted by shutdowns, and that women are more likely than men to be mindful of the risks of COVID-19, which has led to many to withdraw from the workplace altogether. And the last one is that people just don't want to do certain jobs in the era of COVID. This is hypothesis number five. It has fundamentally changed the way we work and how we think about work. The impacts will be far-reaching from vast new opportunities for people to work remotely, or uh, there are some companies, including large tech firms like Twitter, who have told their workers they may never need to come back to the office. The other side of this coin is that there are certain jobs that may not be as popular in the future as they have been in the past, or at the very least, there are certain jobs that just not sought after. Working in restaurants comes to mind immediately, for example, not only do waitresses and waiters have to potentially expose themselves to customers, they are also exposed to the worst behavior of customers, who are both rude and abusive. This behavior ranges from the general grumpiness of impatience to actual physical abuse. Just this week, three tourists from Texas were arrested in New York City after assaulting a hostess who asked them for proof of vaccination per the local ordinance requiring her to do so. And, that, and this and this part here makes me think of like a more general like think of like what 
of the general, uh, the bigger question of what the economy is for. You know, it's to meet our needs. We don't need restaurants. We don't need there to be restaurant workers. Because when you think about worker shortages, like we need all these workers. We need these jobs to be filled. Do we really? What do we lose? The ability to go out and find dine? I don't get it. No, you, petty bourgeois owner, you lose out on something. You lose a few more servants to wait on you. At least that's the way me in a crappy mood is thinking about it. But we're also, there's a shortage of fewer teachers and and all these other sectors that uh, I and many others would consider are needed positions that need to be filled. And that's where, let's say, there's shortages of teachers in the school district because the school district was forced to lay off 100 people. I'm talking about my school district because of state cuts. So that's not so much market forces and demand, although they would say it is. That's more about austerity and the ability to not take from the richest and fund our school system properly. Or to have a savings, a surplus, a rainy day, so that if there is some shock that social services do not have to shut down because maybe you don't remember what happens when social services get cut or shut down. All hell breaks loose. Or as they're cut slowly year by year, trickle away, attrition, things get steadily worse. So what comes next? Says uh, Ask the banker. Uh, There are other variable at play, too, besides the ones listed. I think multiple rounds of federal stimulus and enhanced long-term unemployment benefits have played a role, although there have also been studies that have found that states that reduced these unemployment benefits did not have any notable uptick in job seekers versus states that didn't. I like that little sentence there. points out that it isn't just, oh, people being lazy. They're on unemployment. As soon as that ends, you better believe they'll be going back to work, back to the grind, back where they belong, back to being productive for me. But no, there was no notable uptick. In my opinion, these programs are the very least did not let potential job seekers be more select. What they did allow is for potential job seekers to be more selective in the jobs they sought out. However, and anyone seems to have an anecdote about a friend, family member, Facebook acquaintance that was sitting home collecting unemployment when they could be working. I can hear my more progressive friends calling foul on this stereotype as they read this. But I have to be honest. I work with and know a lot of people through my bank work, and there have absolutely been people who have taken advantage of these programs. Now, of course, I hate this framing. It's not taking advantage of. It is living. It is just living. They're taking advantage of the system. Yeah, okay. Norm. Uh, But a more overarching variable, and the point on which I will conclude today, is that the economy has just been bouncing back. I'll end where I started. This is a strange time for our nation and world, and a strange time for the economy and the people who are part of it. Be patient and kind and gracious to those who are serving in any capacity right now. We will get through it. But this is a weird time, and some extra grace and compassion towards one another would go a long way right now. Basically, don't treat workers like a commodity, like a resource that is needed, like potatoes. Now, in the last 10 minutes, 
uh, from Inc. Magazine, Magazine for Business, for Businesses' sake, in the Best Workplaces section for some reason. It's about the other side of the labor market, uh, which is the hiring side. And it's the kind of article that both kind of would make me, it can make me fume and angry and upset and like, what bull, what bull crap. But also kind of like a, yeah, our system sucks. We need economic planning if we're going to like, if we're going to fix the labor shortage or to have some kind of equilibrium between supply and demand, we need planning. We need democratic decision making. Right now, it's the opposite of that. In fact, you have employers who are making things even more bureaucratic and authoritarian over time, mostly to save money on HR people, I guess, by automating. I may be giving way to lead. Anyway, the title is In the Middle of the Great Resignation, which is sometimes what you know the, what the guy referred to, but he didn't name it, which are people just saying, look, I don't have to work or I don't want to work these jobs I'm going to hold out for something better, or I'm going to withhold my labor from the market until conditions approve, because otherwise, even if I took a job, I still couldn't afford rent. So in the middle of the great resignation, as it's kind of called, employers are rejecting millions of qualified workers, new Harvard research finds. It's labor shortage. Yeah, right. We can't find good workers. Well, here's something that's at work behind the scenes that makes, you know, the whining even more of like, what a bunch of babies. So problematic hiring software and bad job descriptions deserve a big chunk of the blame. And this is something I've encountered in my job searching for better jobs over the last uh, five years or any kind of job or getting hired. Usually, you don't get hired unless there's some human element where you know them or you have a good human reference um, and so on. But let's, let's go through it short. I'll just summarize it. Employers are using these automated systems that are basically just like because their resume has one thing out of place, they're rejected. Or they don't have the – like they're writing these job descriptions where like they need to know um, – let's see – these epic overprescriptive job descriptions generally deter some job seekers from even sending in the resume. I, I can attest to that many times. But the real problem occurs when these bloated lists of requirements are fed into automated hiring softwares. Thanks to these systems, millions of resumes are tossed because of the gaps, uh, because of gaps in employment history or other quote-unquote problems that aren't really problems. So as the uh, Harvard researcher Joseph Fuller cited examples of hospitals scanning resumes of registered nurses for computer programming when what they needed was someone who can enter patient data. So they want data entry. Power companies, he said, scan for customer service background when hiring people to repair electric transmission lines. Some retail clerks won't make it past a hiring system if they don't have floor buffing experience. And this is a problem with most hiring that, like, it precludes any on-the-job training and thus putting more and more burden on colleges and technical schools where you basically need to get three different types of degrees to be qualified to do, what, a plumbing job or something. You, there's no on-the-job training. There's no, I can't afford to train you or to have you to be the least efficient to be able to do the job like as described right now. So, in fact, 88% of employers the researchers spoke to agree that qualified candidates are vetted out of the process 
because they do not match the exact criteria of the job description. And this is not a minor problem. So does somebody really need a college degree to do the job, for instance? Previous studies show that in many, many cases, the answer is no. The report also suggests moving from a, and this is the whole like screening, like, oh, you need a, a bachelor's, you know, to, to do various things. The report also suggests moving from a negative to affirmative logic when screening for, screening for jobs. <clears throat> Rather than crossing off candidates for a long list of perceived issues, employers should instead aim to include all resumes that meet a shorter list of must-must-have attributes. Finally, smaller businesses with a manageable number of positions to fill may want to automate less of the process. Yes, it will take you longer to screen resumes by hand, actual work, but if that saves you from struggling to fill a position for weeks or months, maybe your fancy hiring software is a false economy. Man, I, I feel like most capitalism is a false economy. Don't you, folks? You may disagree with me. But you won't in the end. You'll agree with me in the end. So I think it's time, folks, to wrap up the show. Uh, my profound fakes for listening, which is as a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, or topics you'd like to hear discussed. Send to my social medias on Facebook, Twitter, uh, even Instagram, though it's, I think it's just Dan Platt. This program is made as part of an independent community radio station. Please support us materially. That's at grandstreetarts.org. Support us. Best way of supporting the show is to just tell others about it. Share, comment, review the stuff. Just put in a little bit of labor. It'll be worth it. Uh, this episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps. The full archive of the show, all 130 episodes, are up on the my website, threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. Be well. Keep it rad. Keep waving the flags of the three lefts. <laughs>